All right, Revelation chapter 1, okay? Revelation chapter 1. Have you ever gone somewhere by yourself? Maybe it was in your bedroom or in your prayer closet, wherever that is. Maybe it's out in the field somewhere. And you just thought about that song. Not necessarily that song itself, but the message of that song. Man, isn't it something to just go get away from everybody else, get away from all the other influence, all the technology, and just get along with the Lord and think about how awesome He is and awesome in the right sense of the word, right? We serve an awesome God, don't we? And man, I don't know about you, but I know about me, and sometimes I put God in an awful small box. And I need to take him out of the box, put me in the box, and remember he's carrying the box, right? And we serve a wonderful God. And man, what, a, what better book to study than to see the greatness of God than the book of Revelation. It really, really puts it on display. And I got to say to Gracie over here, Gracie got off easy just a minute ago. If it was me up here, I would have made her stand up on the pew while we sang happy birthday to her. I wouldn't do that to Tim, though. All right, yeah, you would All right, Revelation chapter 1. I want to just kind of, I did a really, really poor job last week of sticking with my slides. So I want to just go back through them real quick, okay? If you'd like to jot down some notes uh, as we go through, just some really some bullet points, really. As much for me to stay on course as it is for you. Uh, But uh, we talked last, last Sunday night was really just sort of kind of the biblical introduction, which is what Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 through 3 is. John starts off the book by telling us, this is why I'm writing the book, right? He gives us the description in verse number one. He tells us this is a book that is meant to reveal, not conceal the truth. This isn't the book of Daniel where he tells him to seal it up. This is the book of Revelation where he says, don't seal it up. The whole point of this book is to show, right? Show things that are coming. And man, we talked about that last week. It's a book meant to reveal. It's a book of prophecy. It tells us the future, And we talked and sort of joked last week, though it's no joke, how many people spend so much money on soothsayers and fortune tellers and all kinds of crazy stuff because they want to know what's going to happen in the future. And we already know what's going to happen in the future because the Bible tells us what it is. And by the way, it's truth, right? He is the faithful witness is what he's called here. In just a minute, we're going to see it. You see it in chapter 3. It's a book that reveals. It's a book of prophecy. And it's a book that must come to pass. It says it right there in verse 1, must shortly come to pass, and it must come to pass because this is God that we're talking about, right? God always does what God says he's going to do, and that's one of the greatest, to me, and hopefully to you too, is one of the greatest comforts of the Christian life, is that you can believe God when he says he's going to do something, he is going to do it. He always has, and he always will, and the other thing excuse me, John tells us is a book that is going to come to pass soon. Right, It's going to come to pass soon. And I think really both of those things we talked about last week apply. Imminency means it could happen any moment. I believe, I really truly believe the Apostle Paul when he said in his letters to be ready because he believed Christ could come back, I believe he meant that. And I believe we should expect that today. And also the fact that when this starts to happen, boy, it's going to happen fast. Within seven years, the entire world as we know it is going to be completely changed. And so seven years might seem like a long time if you're one of the kids sitting in here, but if you're one of the adults in here, you know how short of a time that is, right? And so it's a description of the book, the credentials of the writer. He tells us about himself and why it is that we should do verse 3 and listen to him. He says, he bear record of the word of God. That's verse 2. He got to hear from God himself. He says, he bear record to the testimony of Jesus Christ. Man, 
If somebody's going to tell me about Jesus and about what Jesus is going to do, I want to hear it from the person that got to hear from him directly, don't you? We talked about the, uh, the character of a witness is based on their, their knowledge of the person that they're witnessing about. Man, if they didn't actually hear him, if they didn't actually see him, I'm not sure their witness is going to cost, be worth too much in a court, right? But John bare record of Jesus. He bare record of the word of God. And the Bible tells us in verse 2 that he was given special visions into the future. And God demonstrated the future, not in an, though there was an audible voice, he tells us and even says the word signified, right? In verse number 1, these were pictures. These were images. And that's why so much of the book of Revelation is portrayed to us in that way. There's pictures that we see, right? Number three, last week, this is where we stopped, the blessing, right? The promised blessing to those of us that will pick up the book and read it and hear it and heed it, and that was the blessing. We talked about these, we didn't really talk about them, we just mentioned them. The seven blessings, and maybe you went home and looked some of those up uh, and studied them yourself. So John brings us to chapter one, verse number four tonight, all right? And I called it the glorious greeting, so John has told us, here's the purpose of the book. He said, here's the, I'm the writer of the book, and this is why there's credibility to what I'm about to tell you. He says, here's the promised blessing that God gives you if you read the book. And then in verse 4 through 6, John tells us who it is he's writing this book to, right? Let's read it together, okay? John chapter 1, verse number 4 says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace, from him which is, and which was, and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us, and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion, forever and ever, and all God's people said, amen. amen. I don't have time to do it, but if we flipped over to chapter 5, in a very real reality, that statement, in many ways, is the praise song we're going to be singing to Christ in heaven. We see a glimpse into heaven, and that's what they're singing. All the glory goes to Jesus. Let's pray tonight, and then we'll jump right in, okay? Father, we love you. I pray that you would guide me tonight as I preach and teach. Lord, thank you for the promised blessing that you have given for those of us that will read and study and take heed to what we see in this book. Lord, would you teach us tonight? Would you remind us of things we already know? Would you help us to see things maybe we've never seen? And Lord, most importantly, may we see you tonight in a more clear way than we ever have before, and may we serve you because of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I call this a glorious greeting on purpose. We're going to just break down sort of this greeting that John gives to, uh, to the churches. And I think you will come away. This is one of those parts of the... By the way, let's, be, uh, let's confess our sins for a minute, okay? How many of you ever read the introductory part of a book of the Bible and you just go through it real fast? You ever do that? I'm talking about the first couple of verses. Have you ever been guilty of that? It's like, John, do this, do this, do this. And sometimes if we're not careful, it's kind of like, let's just, let's just get to the, the good stuff, right? Can I tell you something tonight? This is the good stuff, all right? John is telling us in this book who he's writing this book to. And by the way, 
he's not just talking about the first three chapters. He's talking about the whole revelation, right? This revelation is meant to be sent to who? To the church, right? To us. Now, first of all, we have to acknowledge what it says in the passage, right? This letter is written to seven literal churches. Look back at verse 4, will you? John to the seven churches which are in Asia. All right, you say, where are they at and what is that? Okay, that's modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor in the Bible. And here's a map of where you'd find them if you were to go to modern-day Turkey today. All right, seven literal churches. Now, here's what's so neat about these churches. These churches are in what Bible historians say were sort of postal centers in Bible days. You say, what's the big deal about that? Okay, listen. If you want to disseminate information as quickly as possible in Bible days, you don't get to upload it on the internet, right? You don't get to put it on a Google search or anything else. It's going to be handwritten letters delivered through people. And so these seven churches, which by the way, I think this is interesting, and I don't get bogged down on all this stuff, but it's interesting to me that maybe here we see a tactic that the early church used in planting churches. They went to the postal centers, to the people centers, and sent out churches from there. But there are seven churches that he writes the letter to, number one being Ephesus, which, by the way, was the first church plant in Asia Minor, and very likely the place from which all of these other six churches were planted. But what do we know about these seven churches? Because I think it tells us a lot about the church as a whole. All right. Well, the Bible tells us that five of these churches we're in a condition that needed to be corrected, right? And we're going to study through each of these churches. Um, but for, for time's sake, let me just go through them real quick, all right? By the way, let me show you a picture. This is the island of Patmos. If you wonder what that might have looked like, I thought it might be curious because I was, so I looked it up. So when, you, when he says he was on a rock quarry, that kind of gives you an idea, right, of what John might have been doing for his punishment, hammering out boulders and rocks for the Roman Empire. By the way, did the Roman Empire use a lot of stones? Oh my goodness, go over and look at some of their architecture, right? Wouldn't it be amazing, you know, again, you can't see these kinds of things. What if you could stand and see a piece of architecture that the Apostle John carved the stone out and built the building with? I don't know why that, I just think those kinds of things are neat. But if you could go to Patmos, this is what you'd see. A lot of the island, there are people that live there, of course, but now this is the historic place where they think, and of course, I don't know how they know this stuff, It's not like the walls are glowing or anything, but this is the place where historically they think John received the the vision. And it does go very far back in history that this traditionally is the place, so take it or leave it, but you can actually go to the place that they think maybe John had this vision. But whether this is the place or not, he had the vision, right? So come back to the churches with me, okay? Five of the seven churches that this letter is sent to need to be corrected, right? Okay, so that's the overwhelming majority, isn't it? In fact, just think about them for a minute. The first one you see the arrow pointing to there is Ephesus. Remember what Jesus says about Ephesus? He says, you have left your first love. He says, if you don't repent and do the first works, here's what he says. He says, I'm going to come to you and put out the candle. In other words, I'm going to stop using this church. Man, what a warning, right? If we leave the purpose of what God made for us, He's going to remove his presence. He's going to remove his power. He's not going to light the church. He's not going to set us on fire. Boy, we need revival, right? That's revival is what he's asking for Ephesus. The second church at the top there, number three on that map is Pergamos. God says for them that they're an idolatrous church. They're idolatrous, an immoral church. They've left God as far as their being 
being his bride. They made other things their, their God. So boy, what a serious charge God gives to the early church. Number four on the map there is Thyatira. God says this is the com- compromised church, the sinful church. Boy, is that prevalent today in the church? Churches that have left their first love, churches that are, have made other things their God, churches that are compromised and sinful. We go on through the list. Number five on the map is Sardis. God says, boy, imagine getting this as your um, label, the dead church, the church that's dead spiritually. Man, what a sad commentary. Number six, or uh, yeah, number six, or excuse me, I'm sorry, number seven on the list, number five on our list is the church of Laodicea. And this is the one that God gives a pretty graphic description of, right? He says this is the nauseating church. This is the church that is lukewarm. He would his mouth. You say, why are you taking the time to talk about all these bad churches? Well, five of the seven churches God writes this letter to are need to be corrected. They're not right with God. One of the churches, this one here, number two, which is Smyrna. Smyrna is a suffering church. It needs to be encouraged. They're not, they're not reprimanded. They're comforted. And then there's one church. That's the church at Philadelphia, number six on the map. That is the church that doesn't get um, corrected when God confronts them. In fact, he praises them for their faithfulness. Now, I want you to think about those seven churches for a minute. We know those are seven literal churches. Those are seven literal situations that those churches find themselves in. And yet, these seven churches, in a very real, real way, represent the church as a whole, don't they? I found this so interesting this week. <clears throat> I was just reading some statistics, and you know what they say the percentage of Christians are on the world in the world that are suffering persecution? One out of every seven Christians, seven to eight, is under severe persecution. You know what I think, so, by the way, I'm not making a big point about this, but you know what I think is interesting about that is that's the same percentage of the churches on this map that were under severe persecution in AD 96. Five of the seven are struggling spiritually. Man, is that the description of the church today or what? Five of the seven churches the overwhelming majority of the churches need to either have revival, they need to get rid of their sin. He says these are the churches that he's writing these letters to. So absolutely, it's seven literal churches, but it's written to the church as a whole, right? We know that again from verse 1 because he says in verse 1 to John, to show unto his servants. Again, the number seven, picturing fullness, completion, the church as a whole represented here. And certainly, the book of, this book is written to us, all right? Number two, not only a message for the church, but this is where I get to the greeting, right? A blessing for the church. <clears throat> what is John really, in a sense, praying that the church will receive as they read this, this book? Look at verse number four again. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and what? Peace. All right, now here's, you, have you ever read that somewhere else in the Bible? Yeah, how about just about every single book the Apostle Paul wrote, he starts with grace and peace. I could give them all to you, but I'm not going to do that to you for time's sake. He starts with grace and peace. Why? Why is it so important? Not just Paul, the, Peter does the same thing. First Peter chapter 1, verse 2 says the same thing. And now we have the Apostle John, 
who begins this greeting with grace and peace. Now, is that just, obviously, it was a common greeting, right? Was there more to it than just a common greeting? I would submit to you that there absolutely is. The Apostle Paul purposefully writes all of his letters and begins with these two blessings. Grace and peace be unto you. What is grace? There's lots of definitions that have been given, right? Some use the, the, uh, the letters God's riches at Christ's expense. Um, certainly some just define it as simply as God's favor. And aspects of all these things would certainly be true, right? Why do you think John now writes the same thing he read that Paul wrote and that Peter wrote? I think it's interesting, don't you, that Paul, for so many of his letters, he is in a where? In a prison. In fact, Paul in his own letters says, I asked God to take away this this thorn in the flesh three times. And he said, no, he says, my grace is sufficient for thee, right? In other words, Paul, for so much of his Christian life, was in a situation where he desperately needed the grace of God, but he also desperately and wonderfully experienced the grace of God. Guess where John is now? He's a prisoner, isn't he? On the island of Patmos, desperately in need of the grace of God and wonderfully experiencing the grace of God. I thought about these two things that, that, that almost every book of the New Testament almost starts with. And you think about it in your own Christian life. Grace and peace. The two, I hate to use the word things, but the two blessings of God that you and I need to live the Christian life. We could almost say God's grace is his strength, right? We need his help, his strength, his favor. What's God's peace? Here's John. He's sitting as a prisoner on the island of Patmos. He's been possibly boiled in oil. His life has been ruined. He's getting elderly. He's almost at the end of his life. He probably thought his life was over as far as his ministry at this point. He needed God's grace, didn't he? He needed God's strength. Now think about the seven churches. Five of them are struggling spiritually. They need God's grace. Oh my goodness. They need God's convicting. They need God's um, um, wisdom. They need God's direction. They need God's mercy, right? They need God's grace. How about the suffering church? Do they need God's peace? Mm. We have never experienced, have we, what many, many, many Christians throughout history have experienced, even probably most. I get up every day, and I'm not, most days, I'm not worried about what's going to happen that day because I'm a Christian. We can publicly proclaim we're having a big men's meeting at our church. We can put it out on the internet and send it through the, 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 the digital waves. Not, not afraid, but not John. And folks, listen, not one out of every seven Christians on the planet right now. They need God's grace and peace. But listen, even though we aren't experiencing severe persecution, do we still need God's peace sometimes? Every day? Do we still need God's grace? Here John is, is in a way praying, God bless these Christians, these seven churches, with your strength, your grace, and your peace. As Philippians says, that passes all understanding. 
That you can be a prisoner who's been boiled in oil on an island digging out rocks and you can still have peace. Wow. But here's where it gets really good. Who is he asking and, and, and who is he presenting to these churches as the source of grace and peace? Keep reading. Verse 4. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from, okay, here's where it's coming from, right? Grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come. Think most certainly this is a reference to God the Father. This is how God defines himself so many times in scripture, right? We read it last week. He's the alpha and omega, right? The beginning and the end. He describes himself so often in scripture to us in a, in a time frame because that's what we associate with. The one who always has been, the one who knows what's going to happen, and the one who is present. Now, let me ask you a question. What better person to get grace and peace from than the God who knows everything that's happened, who knows everything that's going to happen, and who's present right now in this moment? See, that's who John says grace and peace be from. God the Father, but he doesn't stop there, does he? Look at the rest of verse Four, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. You say, the seven spirits? What in the world is that? All right? We've already talked a little bit about the number seven in this book, right? It's a picture of perfection, right? Fullness, completion. I think that this is simply a representation of the Holy Spirit. If you want to jot down this verse, Isaiah chapter number 11, verse number 2. It teaches us in Isaiah 11, too, about the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit in the seven ways he ministers to us, which, by the way, you want to be encouraged, go over there and read that and think about that for a little bit. Here's grace that's coming from God who is, who was, and is to come. Here's the, mer- or the grace and peace of God that's coming from, out of the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. What's the next one? Peace. Here's grace and peace coming from the Holy Spirit, the one that God sent to indwell us, and the comforter, right? The one who came to lead us and guide us and empower us. Man, what grace and peace there is from God the Holy Spirit. And how about this one? From God the Son. Look at the rest of verse 5, or look at verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth. Here is what, I love this picture. Here's the Trinity, right? Every person of the Godhead involved in you and I receiving grace and peace. Have you ever stopped to think about how God and in his, the Trinity ministers to us? Sometimes we don't really think about these things because we just, we, we think of God as God and and. And that's wonderful enough, right? Think about it for a minute. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? So God loves the world and sends his son. John chapter 14, verse number 31 says that the world may know that I love the Father, even so I go. And he goes and dies on the cross for you and me. So God loves us, he sends his son. The son loves the Father and loves us and goes and dies on the cross. And when he leaves, he sends who? He says, when I go away, I'm going to send you another comforter. 
And then the Holy Spirit comes into our life. And here's the Trinity. Here's the entire Godhead who's ministering in our lives. And His grace is unbelievable. And here's what's so neat. As we study through the book of Revelation, we're going to see the entire Trinity in working together, accomplishing God's will through this book perfectly. And ministering to your life and my life perfectly. Because God, the, all, the, the God that we just sang about, is giving us grace and wants to give us peace. And I'm not talking about in heaven. I'm not talking about, as Dad says, in the future. I'm talking about right now, tonight. I'm talking about with all of the horrible things going on on the planet, God wants you and me to have peace. He sent his son so we would have peace. The son went to the cross so we would have peace. The Holy Spirit was sent so we could have grace and peace. God gives to us, the church, his children, a blessing. Now, man, I don't have time necessarily. Let me me look at it real quick. Look at verse number five. Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness. What better person of the Trinity to receive grace and peace from than the one who was here and walked where we walk and had to live where we live? He was the faithful witness, wasn't he? Remember when Jesus stood before Pilate? Sorry, I shouldn't have gone to number three. Now everybody's jotting down notes. Not listening. No, I'm just kidding. I'm still under point number two. No. Jesus, the faithful witness, man, the one who walked where we walk and lived where we live and who did what he asked us to do. He can give us grace because he knows where we've been. He knows where we are. He can give us peace because he knows the things that we struggle with, doesn't he? Doesn't doesn't he? Jesus, the faithful witness, verse 5 says, not just the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead. Anybody else ever raised himself from the dead? Jesus was the first. Now, other people raised from the dead, but the point is Jesus was the first one to ever have victory over death himself. And it's through Christ that we have victory over death, right? Man, what better person to give us grace and peace than the one who had victory over death and hell and the grave? And then it says, verse 5, not just the first begotten of the dead, the prince of, I love this one, the prince, the first one, the first place of the kings of the where? The earth. There's been some powerful people on this planet in history, hasn't there? There are some powerful people on this planet tonight. But folks, listen. Nobody, nobody is as powerful as the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, prove it. No one has ever laid dead in a tomb for three days and raised themselves to life. And nobody is going to do what the Lord Jesus Christ is going to do and what we see him do in this book. What a blessing. Verse 3 says it's a blessing to read this book, right? You get to verse 5 and you're already blessed. Your blessers so full it's exploding. Look at number three. He gives us not just a blessing and a message for the church, but a reminder for the church. Look down at verse 5 again. He goes into this, he breaks into this praise song, this doxology in verse 5. He says, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins and his own blood. He says, church, don't forget this. Letter A over there on the screen. Who's the lover of the church? Jesus Christ is. Did you see how he worded it? Unto him that loved us. He's not just the lover of the church, he's the savior of the church. 
him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And he goes on as a result of our salvation, verse number six says, he's made us kings. The Bible says we're gonna rule and reign with Christ. It says that our position of ruling and reigning will be dependent upon our faithfulness to serve him on this earth. But we're gonna get to rule and reign with him. And by the way, do you notice that that's in present tense? And hath made us. This isn't something that's gonna happen. This is something that's happened if you know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. He's made us kings and what's the other one? priests unto our God. I know we say it a lot, but aren't you thankful tonight you can pray? By the way, let me just, I've had people come to me and say this to me before. Hey, Pastor Tim, I just need you to pray about this for me. Hey, listen, we are not priests. We are priests, but so are you. Did you know you have the same connection to God Almighty that a pastor does? It has nothing to do with an office. It has to do with your relationship with God. And what happened when you trusted Jesus Christ as Savior is you, God made you a priest. You can talk to the God of the universe, the one that is, that was, and is to come. And you don't have to go to some guy in a black suit to talk to him. You don't have to pray to some other person who's already died before to talk to. You can talk to God. That's what John's telling this church right here, isn't it? He says, remember, Christ is the lover of the church. He's the savior of the church. And then here's the one that we can't forget. This is the reminder. Christ should be the glory of the church. Christ should be the glory of the church. Folks, there's been too many churches throughout history that have gotten to be too much about a person. And they build statues of the person and they put up pictures of the person and they build, they write things about the person. Listen, the only person who ought to be glorified in this church or any other church is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one that died for the church. He is the one that gifted the church. He's the one that came up with the idea for the church. Look at the end of verse six. He's made us kings and priests unto God and his father. To him be glory and dominion forever. Amen. Here's the reminder tonight. This church is about Jesus Christ, period. Every church ought to be about the Lord Jesus Christ, period, because he is the lover of the church and the savior of the church. Let me give you one more and we're done tonight. I know there's a football game or something going on tonight, so everybody's looking at No, I'm just kidding. The last one is this, and to me this is, we've already looked at it, and so we're not going to look at it long, but look at verse 7. The promise to the church. This book is a message to the church. This book is a reminder for the church. This book gives a promise to the church, and it's in verse 7. Behold, he cometh. With the clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all the kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is, and which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. On my notes, I wrote this. I wrote number four, a promise for the church and a warning for the world. A promise for the church but a warning for the world. Did you see it in the verse? 
Boy, what an encouragement to, to the believer, but what a fearful thought to the unbeliever. Behold, behold, that means pay attention, right? Look, listen. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. He's the Alpha and the Omega, beginning of him. Here's the promise of the church. Jesus is coming again. Amen. Amen. Folks, we sing songs about, <clears throat> excuse me, crybaby's coming out. We sing songs about it. But I'm not sure sometimes it's, it's in our heart. It will be worth it all when we see Christ, when we see him. Isn't it a glorious greeting to the church? Man, this message, this book is for you and for me. This book is meant to be a blessing and just the greeting that he gives, the the first six, seven, eight verses of 407 verses, the blessing, the blessing meter is exploding because we serve an awesome God, don't we? And he loves his church. He loves his bride. And the question is, will we love him more as we study this book and get to know him more each day? Let's pray, all right? <clears throat> Father, we do love you tonight. And Lord, we are so incredibly thankful that you give us every one of these 66 books. Well, Lord, tonight, we're especially thankful for this book of Revelation. Thank you that you have given us a message that tells us what's coming. So, Lord, that we can be ready. So, Lord, that we can be burdened to tell others what's coming. Lord, thank you that you have given us grace and peace. Thank you that you, you offer it every single day. May we live our lives, Lord, every day, and I know we say it a lot, Father, but may we live every day in such a relationship with you, Lord, that we truly are growing in grace, that we truly are experiencing, Lord, regardless of the circumstances, that we can say with Paul that we're experiencing peace that can't even be understood. Lord, it only comes from you. Thank you that you've offered it, that you give it. Help us to live in it, even this week. We pray in Jesus' precious name, amen. 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 Well.